Um, As we prepare our hearts to hear God's word, let's read the prayer of illumination together and ask for his help. Read with me. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may the spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. Hear the words of Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. In March of 2010, (coughs) you have to excuse me, I'm a little under the weather. In March of 2010, (coughs) a couple years after I graduated college, two of my friends and I decided to go on an outdoor adventure. The plan was to drive out to the Anza Borrego Desert near San Diego, summit Whale Peak, which is the tallest mountain in that region, and then find a place to camp in the backcountry. Now, Whale Peak is not an exceptionally tall mountain. It's just a little over a mile high at 4,349 feet, and the trip to the summit and back is listed at four and a half miles. After arriving in the early morning at the trailhead, the hike towards the summit was relatively uneventful. The only tricky part was that the trail wasn't so clear at times. Now you can see the picture up there. Um, I don't know know if the arrows are up there yet, but, oh yeah. If you take off the arrows, you can actually see that um, it's kind of hard to see the trail, right, without without the arrows there to actually show you. So it was kind of hard to pick up the trail at times. That's actually a picture from Whale Peak. And some of you know that in this, you know, um, higher desert ter- elevation desert terrain that it's mostly just rocks and dirts and shrub. And, you know, whereas a trail through the forest is pretty clear because of the undergrowth, um, the sparse vegetation of this mountain made every open dirt path seem like a possible trail. But when we reached the top, we were greeted by wonderful 360-degree views of the entire region. You could see as far as the Salton Sea. And we were still on schedule because... It was late morning, almost noon. And I have a picture of us at the summit. There's us. Um, I'm there on the, on the right, I believe. And, um, but little did we know what awaited us. The trouble began on the return trip. As we descended the mountain, we started to veer south as there was a south approach to the summit. However, we had come from the north approach. And it was only a good 30 minutes later that we realized our mistake. And we had two choices. 
either to backtrack until we reached the fork, um, which meant additional distance, or to cut across the landscape until we hit the North Trail. We did have a compass, so you know there was a sense of what was north and south. We chose the latter to save time. As we scrambled over boulders, avoided being stabbed by cacti, we were short on water and layers because we had expected to be a lot closer to the car at this point, and the temperature was dropping. And there was a real sense of fear and even despair as we crested each hill with no sight of the trail. And what surprised me as we crossed that barren landscape wasn't the physical fatigue of our exertion, but the mental fatigue of uncertainty. Did we miss the trail? Were we moving in the right direction? Could we be sure that we would get home? Today, we stand on the cusp of a new year. And often a New Year's sermon might be a rousing call to live more faithfully, accomplish great things for God, make big changes in your life type of sermon. But I want to take a different tack. Many of us have faced deep and soul-searching difficulty this year. Our church has gone through unprecedented change. Our sense of confidence might have been shaken. And though we might not be literally wandering out on a desert mountain, we might feel like we are there. We are uncertain and fearful about what the coming year might bring, and that fear eats away at our heart and soul. In our passage today, the prophet Jeremiah was speaking into a fearful and uncertain time. God's people were in exile. The cities and the temples had been razed to the ground by the Babylonians in 586 BC, and they had been dragged away from their homes and land into a foreign country. The future looked uncertain and even bleak. But most of all, there was a crisis of faith because God had made promises to them to be their God and to love them, and yet from all appearances, he had turned his back on them. He had forgotten about them. He had abandoned them. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, there comes a new promise, a special significant type of promise known as a covenant, a promise that was meant to bring hope and assurance and confidence that God had not abandoned them. He had not forgotten them. This same promise, this same covenant, is his covenant with you and me. And my hope is that as we dive into this passage today, you will be comforted. You will be confident that God loves you and is for you. And with this comfort and confidence of the new covenant, we can progress and thrive, not just for the years, the year to come, but for all our days. In order to appreciate this new covenant, we need to further understand what happened with the covenant that came before, the old covenant that is referenced in verse 32, which brings me to my first point, the covenant breakers. The covenant breakers. So what is a covenant in the first place? It's a very important term in scripture, and as I mentioned briefly, a covenant can be seen as a special type of promise. And what makes it special? 
One general definition of covenant is an oath-bound relationship between two or more parties. A covenant is like a promise in that it's made between two or more parties. Specifically, it's a, it's a promise that establishes a relationship. The best example that most of us are familiar with is the marriage covenant. We know that a key part of the marriage ceremony are the vows that a bride and groom make to each other. That's actually not a picture from our wedding, just a generic stock photo. Um, and when I married my beautiful bride, Jessica, who's sitting here in the first row, a little less than a year and a half ago, I was stressing out about my vows. Not because I didn't want to say them, but because Jessica's pastor who married us made us memorize our vows, which is, uh, you know, with all the things to think about during a wedding was a little stressful. And I'll make a promise to all of you here today, if any of the kids, if I ever have the honor of officiating your wedding, I will not make you memorize your vows. Um, But thankfully, the vows went off without a hitch. Now, what exactly are vows doing? On one level, they're just words. But in another sense, they're significant because they are solemn oaths that established and bound Jessica and I in a relationship of mutual commitment for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, till death do us part. In similar fashion, God throughout history has made covenants with man. Out of sheer goodness, God makes the first covenant with Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 2. God voluntarily binds himself to Adam in a relationship of love and blessing. For God was intimate with Adam and Eve. He gave him the blessing of his presence. And yet this covenant came with condition of man's obedience. They were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if Adam obeyed in this probationary state, he would actually receive even a higher state of goodness, which was symbolically represented by the tree of life. And if Adam disobeyed, the results are obvious from Genesis 3, when he was cast out of the garden and was under the judgment of sin and death. Theologians like to call this first covenant that God made with the first man the covenant of works. God then makes covenants with other significant characters in Scripture, such as Noah or Abraham or David. And each covenant has its own set of blessings and conditions. And like the covenant of works, God freely enters into them. It is his voluntarily, he voluntarily does it, not out of any obligation on, on, on his part. But there's one key difference between the covenant of works and every other covenant. Every other covenant is made with sinful man, not man in his state of perfection at creation. And every other covenant hints at a Messiah who will come as a second Adam and fulfill the covenant of works that Adam could not. Thus, every other covenant is really the expression of one single overarching covenant that theologians call the covenant of grace. I believe I have some slides to show that. Um, There is the covenant of works and then the covenant of grace. All the covenants build on top of each other, but they're all under that single covenant. And the covenant made with Israel soon after the exodus from Egypt is called the Mosaic Covenant because Moses played a key role in delivering that covenant to Israel and is sometimes also referred to as the Old Covenant. It's famously known for being about the Ten Commandments, 
the temple system with its blood and sacrifices. And it's sometimes mistakenly seen as a covenant of works, not of grace. Yet I think Scripture speaks clearly of God's grace in the Old or Mosaic Covenant, which the terms I'll use interchangeably. For example, in Exodus 22, immediately before declaring the Ten Commandments, this is right before God lays down those Ten Commandments that we all know, God actually says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God is reminding them that he is the God who loves them, who has rescued them in their oppression and despair. His grace is given to them first before he asks for their obedience. And according to Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. So the best explanation for why God set his love upon Israel is given there. It's simply because he loved them. I loved you because I loved you. And so the people were supposed to respond in obedience. But history proved time and time again that Israel was rebellious, disobedient, and spat in the face of God and his perfect law by worshiping false gods and going after idols. Now, there was nothing wrong in the law in and of itself. Rather, the problem was with Israel. They were the ones who broke the covenant vows. Notice in verse 32 of our passage, my covenant that they broke, though I, that's God, was their husband. God saw himself as Israel's husband, but it was Israel who broke their vows. So because of their vow-breaking and idol worship, they were subject to the judgment that God laid out in his covenant with them. And one of those, one of those judgments that God explained to them up front was that they would be displaced from their land. And when we really think about it, this isn't just Israel's problem. This is humanity's problem. After our first father, Adam, fell, we are all under obligation to give God the worship that he deserves for he gives us life and breath and existence. You and me, we're all here today because right now, even in this moment, we are being sustained by God's power. But instead of turning to him, we have turned to false gods, to idols. We've given them love and honor, bestowing on them the praise and honor that is only deserved for the living God. This behavior reminds me of a fictional story where a young man was so determined to win the affection of his one true love who had moved away across the sea, or to another city. So he began writing love letters to her once a week. No response. So he increases output to twice a week, and then every day, still no response. In his desperation, he wrote to her twice a day. He finally stopped when he found out she had married the postman. <laughs> as much as we might chuckle at that story, it's also deeply sad that the young woman didn't recognize who was the one who truly loved her, and even hurtful that she gave her affection to someone else. So it is when we worship all the benefits that God gives us in this life above him, 
Benefits that are designed to be good, such as family, children, work, and things that are not bad in and of themselves, such as money, power, the respect of others. In doing so, we give honor to the created things rather than to the creator who loves us. And so all of us are deserving not just of a physical exile, but an eternal, whole person, spirit and body exile, to be forever removed from God. Hell is not in an essence an eternal fire, but it is to be apart from God forever, to be in death, to be apart from the one who is life. And yet, as verse 31 says, God desires to make a new covenant with his covenant-breaking people. And what a covenant it is. That brings us to our second point, the covenant maker, the covenant maker. God, as a great covenant maker, reveals a new promise, a covenant that is in continuity with the old, yet far exceeds it, yet surpasses it. Verse 33 of our passage, look with me. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within, and I will write it on their hearts. In the old covenant, the law was written on tablets of stone. But that same law in the new covenant will now be internalized. Christopher Wright, commenting on this passage, says this, It is no longer merely that Israel should wholeheartedly obey the law when they read or hear it but that they should live by an inner impulse coming from within, from God's law written on their own hearts. In other words, their whole inclination and habitual action would be to live according to God's standards and ways. And in the latter half of verse 33, God goes on to say, I will be their God and they shall be my people. These words, in fact, show the deep continuity between the old and the new covenant, and really all the covenants throughout Scripture. God repeated similar words to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17:7, before the Exodus, out Mount, at Mount Sinai, and before entering the Promised Land in Deuteronomy 26. This is the beating heart of God, his continual pursuit of his people. He desires not to be a God far away, up in the heavens, remote, inaccessible, but he desires to be the God with us, the God who knows us, to call you and me his people. But wait, there's more. In verse 34, another blessing of the new covenant is that everyone in this covenant will know God. This know is an intimate and personal knowledge. It's not the know about or the know of, oh, I know about that person or I know of that person, but it's face-to-face, intimate knowledge. This is an advancement from the old covenant where priests, they had a whole sacrificial temple priest system. They were the ones who had to mediate the presence of God, who had to act as the go-between between the people and God. And there were so many, um, you know, so many layers to it. Even the high priest could only enter the holies of holies, the very inner sanctum of God's presence, only once a year. And in the new covenant, it's, it's far greater because there will be greater knowledge and intimacy and access to God. 
And furthermore, to see the fullness of this new covenant, we need to expand our scope just a little bit. For really, these four verses are just the culmination, the climax of all the promises that Jeremiah is is saying to the people in chapters 30 through 31. So let's just take a look at a couple of the additional blessings that Jeremiah is talking about. If you look at verse 12 of this same chapter, Jeremiah 31, verse 12, they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be over they shall be over the goodness of God, over the grain, the wine, the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. It's a very picturesque, picturesque verse. And you, you have to keep in mind that Jeremiah was speaking to a people who had just undergone the most harrowing experience of their lives in national history. There was siege, famine, destruction, The hills of Israel were likely slathered in blood, burned by fire, filled with the sounds of screams and weeping. And yet, when you read this verse, verse 12, it's like a scene from the sound of music, of people singing and dancing in the hills, in these green pastures, and there's rich heads of grain everywhere, and abundant flocks of sheep dotting dotting these verdant hills. And verse 13, the very next verse, Then shall the young woman rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. It's all there. Dance, merriment, satisfaction in the days of the new covenant. Do you know that this is God's desire for you. His desire is that you are flourishing, rejoicing. More than that, if you are part of his covenant people, this is his promise to you that these days will come. From the beginning of time, it has been Satan's strategy to cause us to question the goodness and love of God. Listen to this famous exchange from Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of, the, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Notice what the serpent is doing right here. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. From the very beginning, Satan's strategy is to cause Eve to question God's good commands. To think that God is not truly good because he is withholding something from them. He's withholding from them, you know, the the ability to be like God's and knowledge of good and evil. But really, that's not the case. To eat of the tree meant death, and God was protecting them from that. Many of you have come through a difficult year. Disappointment, loss, sorrow, pain. And I'm certain that many of us here today have reason to question God's goodness and love. How can we be absolutely certain that God is for us and that he is committed to our flourishing? After all, 
aren't we all covenant breakers and undeserving of his love? And that's exactly the problem. If we look to ourselves for the assurance that these covenant promises and realities will be true. If we base our assurance of God's love and our assurance that he is for us and not against us on our performance, on our ability to love him, our faithfulness to obey, we will always question him. We will have no place of confidence to stand that he is not here to curse or destroy us, even in the midst of what feels like cursing or destruction. So where is our confidence? How can we as covenant breakers know for certain that the promises of the covenant maker God in the new covenant will never fail and always be true? Because there is a covenant keeper. That brings me to my third point, the covenant keeper. The old covenant revealed to the people of Israel and really to all of us just how demanding the law of God was and really how impossible it is for us to keep our end of the covenant with God. Not because God wanted to set us up for failure, but because he really is that perfect and unlike us in his holiness. And more than anything, it pointed to the need for a covenant keeper, a better Adam who would not only obey one command, but every command, who would love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those who truly knew God under the old covenant trusted and looked forward and anticipated and longed for this better Adam, this greater covenant keeper, as we do today. But what makes the new covenant that we are now under a better covenant is we see clearly who that covenant keeper is. It's a babe born in a manger. It's God come down in the flesh. It's the Messiah, the anointed one. It's Jesus, full of grace and truth, hanging on a cross, buried in a tomb, and resurrected to new life. Under the old covenant, there were shadows and hints, but in the new covenant, we have greater confidence because we see Jesus who lived perfectly as a second Adam, sinless and keeping covenant in every area where we have broken it. We hated, he loved. We lied, he spoke truth. We were selfish, he gave of himself. We worshiped false gods, he said, my food is to do the Father's will. And not only that, as covenant breakers, we deserved covenant curses. Yes, Israel in history was judged with the destruction of their homes in exile, but even in that judgment, there was grace. God preserved a faithful remnant. But there is only one person in history who did not deserve covenant judgment and cursing, yet they all fell on him in their terrible fullness. Galatians 3.13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Now why would God do that? Why would covenant curses fall on Jesus instead of us? I saw the movie Dunkirk recently, which is all about the rescue of approximately 300,000 British soldiers from the shores of Dunkirk after France fell to the Germans. It's considered a miracle. The movie follows various characters over the course of this evacuation. 
different, different plot threads. And one set of characters is Mr. Dawson, his son Peter, and their teenage friend George. Now, Mr. Dawson owns a civilian boat, and the call has come out from the Royal Navy to ask all civilians to either volunteer to, to go help in the rescue operation or give up their boats so that someone can take it in that rescue operation. And so as these three head across the channel, the English Channel, they come across an English officer who is on a wrecked ship that has been torpedoed by a German U-boat. And they pick him up off the wreckage, and the officer is shell-shocked, or what we would call today, he's suffering from PTSD. And when he learns that the ship is headed for France, not England, he becomes agitated. He wants to go home. He becomes agitated and tries to take control of the ship. In the ensuing struggle, young George is knocked backwards, falls down the stairs, and is severely injured in the head. Peter, his friend, tries to care for George and is furious at the officer, and the officer is distraught over what he has done. And later on in the movie, their boat begins picking up many soldiers as they, as they near the shores of Dunkirk. And as the soldiers board, Peter warns them to be careful not to trample on the injured George. But one of them mentions that George is actually dead. That officer who, who knocked him down the stairs then comes into the doorway of the cabin and asks Peter and Mr. Dawson, will he be okay, the boy? And in that moment, there's a long pause. And you can see Peter wrestling with his emotions, his eyes hardening, ready to verbally pounce on this officer as before. But surprisingly, he softly replies to the officer, yeah. Mr. Dawson then looks at his son for a long second and nods. It's a powerful moment because Peter had every right to be even more angry with the officer that his friend George had lost his life. Yet there was compassion and forgiveness and grace. Instead of keeping guilt on someone who deserved it, he showed love to the officer and relieved him of further suffering. It's a surprising moment because it runs counter to our normal behavior. There was actually an element of divine logic in that moment where the deserving does not receive his due. But the divine logic of God and the good news of Jesus goes further. For in it, the undeserving, that is Christ, receives our due, the covenant curses. And the answer of why is seen faintly in Peter's attitude towards the soldier, there is love, deep love and compassion. But the Father's love and compassion is far greater in that for his covenant people, when we are united to Christ through faith, his death is our death. His life is our life. We do nothing and receive everything. The greatest assurance in the midst of fear and uncertainty that God is for us, that he desires our joy and our flourishing is to look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. For us to meditate often and frequently on the mystery of the good news that Jesus said to his people, my life for yours. He kept the covenant that we could not keep. That of, wor that of works. And is our guarantee that the covenant of grace expressed in the new covenant 
will never fail, will never fade. Jesus makes sense of the final words in verse 34 of our passage when God gives the reason for why he will make a new covenant, why he will promise to be a God to his people and all shall know him from the least to greatest. For, because, verse 34, he will forgive their iniquities and remember their sin no more. The justice of God and the forgiveness of God find their fulfillment in Christ, for it is through his blood that we are forgiven. As we stand on the cusp of a new year, my prayer is that you will reflect deeply again and again on who Jesus is and what he did. When we wonder how God can love someone who falls so short of his standards, you and me, when we wonder how God can say to us, I am your God and you are my child, don't look inwards for strength and confidence, but look upwards to Jesus. When we wonder whether God is really committed in his love for us, when the road forward looks hard, when we fear the days to come, know that he is for you and your flourishing, even in the valley, even if the darkness does not lift, because Jesus is our covenant keeper and the guarantee of God's love. Let's pray together. Father God, as we ponder the mystery of the gospel, the divine logic that surpasses human logic that we could have never come up with or dreamed of, when we think about the good news of the gospel, the gospel of, of Jesus Christ, who came into the world to save sinners, even as we have reflected on this Advent season, let us reflect all the more in this coming year that we can have certainty and hope that you are for us and not against us, that you love us, that you are committed to us, and we have the greatest assurance because we know that that is all secured by your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. So in his name we pray, amen.